Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is July 16th, 2021. I think I said last week that Biogen's Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm is the, ki- the gift that keeps on giving. Well, after another week, we found more presents on our doorsteps. Uh, Acting Commissioner Janet Woodcock was asked, asked about the curious labeling decision for the product during the interview, and her response was notable. Sarah, you looked into this for us. Did she give another reason for why it was done? Yeah, so she was asked, um, you know, about the labeling um, pullback and why the original label was so broad and just indicated in general for Alzheimer's patients, even though the trial was focused on patients with, you know, mild disease, mild cognitive impairment and so forth. And she said this was really a practice of the neurology um, office that they tend to with these types of neurogenic neurodegenerative diseases give broad indications. Um, And, you know, it's possible, I guess, that multiple reasons for the original labeling can be true, but it's like, you know, it was yet another explanation in some sort of semi-confusing explanations from FDA about how the labeling process has worked here. Um, Obviously, when the drug was initially approved in June, and FDA was asked about this, they really emphasized the fact that they felt like there was no reason based on the mechanism of action that the drug wouldn't be helpful in other stages of the disease. And yet then when they reversed the um, labeling a bit last week, although some people quibble with how much they really narrowed it or not, um, they seem to be making the argument that they always sort of intended it to really be used, you know, or at least started in the more mild patients, and that was emphasized in the clinical study section, and they just felt like they needed to move that information up due to the confusion. So, you know, it just struck me as a little bit um, odd or a little off, given that, you know, everybody's message around this is a little bit different, and obviously people are paying very close attention to FDA's thinking around this product. Yeah, I I, th- I think we're all trying to kind of parse every single, you know, <laughs> phrase and participle that comes out of somebody at the agency's mouth on this one. But I mean, it I mean, it is so I mean, it, is she like as they said in The Godfather, is she amplifying her answer or is this is she trying to change the narrative here? I mean, is there or is it just that, you know, today that day she did, you know, just talking about talking about it kind of from a di- different direction or something. I guess I'm trying to understand kind of where this all fits into the whole, you know, the uh, you know the whole kind of story around uh, this product. No, um, I think one thing that's maybe important to note is that in this interview that Wilcock did um, for the Stat Summit earlier this week, she she seemed a little bit off her game. <laughs> um, you know, Wilcock is somebody we're all used to being. I think very good at representing the FDA in public and dealing with tough questions, you know, from members of Congress who are not particularly always fond of her, the FDA, and she's usually quite capable of holding her own. She seemed a a bit uncomfortable um, or perhaps more than a bit uncomfortable (laughs) dealing with questions on this topic um, earlier this week. And, you know, um, at times she basically you know, described the interview as an interrogation and multiple times sort of tried to pivot off of it, even though it's hard for me to believe going into this, she didn't know that was, this was going to be the main um, 
topic of questioning. So I don't know. I just sort of part of me wonders maybe she wasn't as prepared to deal with this as she could have. Perhaps maybe that's a good sign as she's been trying to, you know, maybe keep a wall between as acting commissioner between what some of the, um, you know, scientists and, you know, leadership in the center have been doing on this drug. Um, I'm not sure, but I do think, you know, given all the, um, how closely people are looking at this, how passionate and how frustrated some people are with FDA's decision here, it's like, it's extra important that every time they communicate about this product and what happened and why, you know, they're consistent and clear because so far a lot of the actions I've seen them take in the past few weeks seem to just be inflaming people's <laughs> frustration with the FDA not really winning them any more favor or friends on the topic. Yeah, I was uh, surprised from the beginning how um, unprepared the agency seemed uh, to uh, address potential concerns about the Adrihelm approval. You know, obviously they had the press conference the day of the approval, but the documents weren't uh, available then. And, uh, you know, we've written about, uh, you know, how uh, with Ilteperson, uh, um, uh, you know, they had the uh, uh, the review materials were kind of ready and, you know, people obviously sort of kind of were still very upset about that uh, um, decision, but it's sort of kind of laid out uh, FDA's thinking in a way that sort of kind of, uh, um, I feel kind of let the, you know, firestorm sort of kind of burn and then uh, subside. Whereas uh, here, there's sort of kind of just sort of this sort of slow rollout of, you uh, uh, information and uh, um, justification in many ways. It's sort of kind of just sort of gets everyone sort of kind of uh, annoyed uh, um, anew uh, um, every time there's one of these uh, um, uh, things released. And it's just sort of kind of uh, funny how it, uh, um, it it's obviously sort of a bigger a bigger drug and sort of you know, perhaps just sort of kind of uh, you know building on uh, frustrations that people had sort of kind of from the uh, the earlier approval uh, um, in the same vein in terms of sort of using the um, the circuit markers in a way that people think that they uh, they shouldn't have in uh, in both the uh, drug, but it's just sort of uh, um, uh, you know maybe they thought that uh, you know uh, holding things back would sort of kind of result result in uh, um, less of a firestorm than it did with uh, Ilteper, uh, um, the, the, uh, excuse me, uh, um, uh, um approval. This obviously hasn't been the case, and uh, you know Sarah, your uh, your point about how uh, multiple. Uh, uh, reasons uh, for uh, a labeling decision can be true is a is a great one, but just the uh, the the variety seem to in, in some ways be sort of kind of so uh, so contradictory, and that it sort of kind of makes you think that they are sort of kind of coming up with explanations that are perhaps sort of kind of hiding their uh, their true intent. It uh, um, uh, was remarkable how little information in the um, you know the memos that they've released so far um, there is about the labeling discussions and sort of, kind of what. Uh, um, what their thinking was and sort of kind of what uh, what led them to sort of kind of come up with this very wide label at the, um, you know, at the beginning. If uh, it really is true that sort of kind of, as Stein said, that sort of kind of that the, um, the breadth of the uh, um, the indication reflected sort of kind of their, uh, their feeling that the mechanism of action was sort of kind of universally applicable across the disease, there, there should have probably been a discussion and sort of kind of some uh, documentation of that in the, uh, the review materials, which uh, um, we haven't uh, seen yet. And then their uh, um, their labeling revision, which were kind of to me is the most uh, most baffling of uh, of these. Clearly, it's kind of that they uh, um, you know there was some sort of uh, you know pushback or concern, and sort of what that uh, um, what that was, they haven't uh, um, they haven't said in a very uh, in a very clear way. And they uh, um, did uh, um, 
did make this change. And then the, uh, um, this was kind of this uh, third, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of kind of uh, reason that uh, that Woodcock gave is uh, equally uh, um, equally strange. I mean, we, we we haven't sort of kind of seen this uh, this policy that she was referring to from the uh, um, from the, uh, the the neuroscience office. So it's a little hard to sort of say what uh, um, what was driving that. But uh, you know, the the first one obviously is we're kind of you know people can disagree about the science. Uh, you know, the FDA said initially that they they thought it worked uh, um, in all stages of the disease. Uh, you know. Um, you know that's a, a reasonable little supposition, I suppose. Uh, you know, uh, not everyone's going to agree, but uh, you know, there's a, a real rationale there. The uh, the second one, uh, again, I think they're really sort of, kind of uh, um, perhaps not being completely forthcoming about sort of, kind of what led to that uh, um, that walk back. And then this uh, um, this last explanation also seems a little bizarre. The lights are reflected. Oh, we meant to do it as wide as uh, um, as we did. They just uh, you know um, uh, they. Uh, you know, they, they understand that it's not sort of applicable. They just don't like adjectives. It just sort of kind of seems uh, <laughs> seems weird that they sort of didn't, uh, you know, they didn't they, they didn't put an early stage because that's just not, uh, they, they like to use action verbs instead. I, it, it, it just seems a little, a little, a little strange to me, uh, too. So uh, they went from sort of kind of a, uh, um, you know, a, uh, I guess we're kind of a plausible if uh, uh, contentious uh, argument about sort of kind of how the, uh, the drug worked or sort of something that's sort of more, more refutable in some ways that her by trying to strengthen their uh, their position, I feel they've actually weakened it. Yeah, the other thing that I think was pretty fascinating to me is when they did the labeling change. Um, you know, the publicity around that was really driven by Biogen putting out a press release. Um, FDA, you know, they updated the information on their website, but that's something you really sort of have to proactively go and dig for in terms of to look at the new labeling and see the letter they sent to Biogen. They didn't put out a press release. They didn't hold a press conference. And yet um, they responded, you know, to individual media requests and people put that in stories, but they didn't sort of proactively try and both kind of control the conversation there, but also they that day they were saying well this was we heard a lot from you know from doctors from patient groups from others that there's confusion here about how to use this drug or who to use this drug we want to address the confusion well in my mind if you feel like there's confusion the best thing you can do is kind of be out there right and talking to people and answering their questions and they seem like they sort of shrank away from doing that, which seems a bit off to me if, you know, you're really trying to address people's concerns or confusion. You would think they'd try and be more proactive. Again, this isn't, you know, this isn't just any old drug approval. This is something that's, you know, garnered attention from people, I think, who never pay attention to drug approvals. So you would kind of expect, you know, in the similar way that FDA has done more public communication around the COVID vaccines, right, than they may have mm -hmm. around some other products. You would just expect that extra level of kind of communication and outreach um, that didn't come with the change. Another thing I thought about, you know, and you know, when, um, you know, with her comments about, um, you know, this being, you know, kind of like the, the neurology division likes to, um, you know, have, you know, give broader labels. I mean, it, did, did, I, I was wondering if that maybe was, and maybe, I, you know, again, I could be reading too much into this, but it seemed like, you know, maybe this was an attempt to try and normalize the way this whole thing went down. And, 
granted, it's not normal. It's not ever going to be normal. You know, we, we I think we all know that. We knew that from the day it was approved. But, you know, you, you still kind of wonder, like, you know, okay, are we, you know, we, you know, are we trying to just say, hey, hey, why are you, you know, are they trying to say, why are you making a big deal out of this? This is the way we, this is the way we do business kind of thing. I don't, it, it just seemed, it just seemed, uh, you know, a little, uh, just a little, uh, you know, odd. Another thing that came up this week was that um, uh, the, Sue, you did a big, deep dive into the Adjuhelm uh, confirmatory trial. Uh, did you find anything unusual in, uh, you know, in your look back at at, um, at that and some of the precedent? Well, to Nielsen's point about there being very little, if any, discussion in the, F- the publicly released FDA review documents about the breadth of the label, there similarly was almost no discussion that I can see in the review documents about either the confirmatory trial timeline of almost nine years or any concerns about whether it would even be feasible to do a confirmatory trial, given that the drug will be available under accelerated approval, uh, at least in the U.S. So we did some, went back and looked at um, some comparisons comparing both the uh, almost nine-year timeline for this trial to both other Alzheimer's drug trial timelines, as well as other accelerated approval drug timelines. And in terms of comparisons to um, other Alzheimer's drug timelines, um, we found eight late stage phase three trials of anti-amyloid antibodies. And the timeline for enrollment and trial conduct of those sort of for seven of those did not exceed 50 months, whereas the uh, aducanumab uh, confirmatory trial timeline from final protocol submission to trial completion was um, about 84 months. So considerably longer than what we've seen with some of the other anti-amyloid uh, compounds out there. And then relative to other accelerated approvals, um, we looked back as far as January, everything, all novel entities approved under accelerated approval since January 2016. And Aduhelm had the fifth longest runway from time of approval to time of final study report submission that being more than 3,100 days. So I think both of these just sort of show, again, what an outlier the Agilehelm decision was. In this context, it was an outlier in terms of the amount of time that they've been given to do this confirmatory trial. I mean, there's not even a draft protocol that has been submitted to FDA yet. And FDA will say, you know, they've been saying, oh, well, we expect there to be, you know, earlier data readouts or interim data readouts that, you know, can be used to verify the benefit. Well, they could have included requirements and milestone dates for those interim data readouts, but they failed to do so in the approval letter. So that also sort of raises the question of um, they certainly have done it in the case of other accelerated approvals. So. That's sort of what we found in our our piece this week. 
Adding to the the outlier uh, nature of this was that you mentioned, uh, I thought it was interesting, you mentioned too, that FDA guidance usually says that they want the trial, the confirmatory trial to be ongoing or at least designed at the time of the accelerated approval. And that didn't happen in this case either. Correct. Their general position is that at the time of accelerated approval, the trial should usually already be underway or at the least, you know, a design agreed upon. And certainly that did not happen here. Now it has not happened. There have been some other situations where it also has not happened, such as everyone's favorite drug at Teplerson. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was no draft protocol in place at the time of that accelerated approval. And that, that confirmatory trial has been substantially delayed. Um, it will have been delayed by more than five years from its original timeline already. You know, I suspect there are probably two things uh, um, uh, going on here in that, uh, um, uh, in this data that you uh, um, so uh, uh, masterfully presented there, uh, Sue. The story is great, it's got a lot of uh, um, charts looking at, uh, you know, comparing the um, Adjuhelm uh, um, requirements to the various other ones that you uh, you discussed early, I encourage everyone to, uh, uh, to look, uh, look through it, but, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's probably a function of, you know, concern about sort of kind of, you know, Teperson and sort of kind of things like that, is that they don't want to be in a position in which the uh, uh, confirmatory trial is delayed and they have to sort of kind of, you know, face a, a blowback about sort of delays or, or things like that. So sort of giving, um, uh, giving Biogen, uh, you know, a very long runway to sort of kind of complete it will sort of kind of, uh, you know, avoid that uh, particular problem. And it's also probably a function of the fact that uh, um, accelerated approval was not considered in earnest really uh, until sort of towards the very end. So there was not time to sort of kind of develop that uh, um, uh, protocol uh, prior to approval and things like that. I mean, um, you know, we've noted that sort of kind of that accelerated approvals were kind of discussed at the, at the um, beginning of the review, but sort of kind of wasn't, uh, um, you know, very much of a focus sort of uh, you know, through much of it and certainly sort of kind of uh, was disavowed at the advisory committee just to, you know, um, you know, a few months before the, uh, um, or I guess more than a few, but sort of kind of, you know, uh, before the uh, um, before the approval. So it, uh, um, it it seems like it's sort of kind of was sort of kind of uh, um, uh, unusual in this sort of kind of that FDA hadn't been, you know, from the beginning planning to do this. They sort of kind of uh, came back around to it at a uh, at a later stage in the review. I mean, I think it's also kind of interesting that you know. Had Biogen had anything in the works in terms of planning for another trial, you know, either under the assumption of accelerated approval, which again, I realized was a fairly late in the review decision, but also possibly anticipating that they would get a CRL and would need to do another trial. I mean, I just, I find the timeline that they've been given to even submit a draft protocol to, I think they have to have that done by August, which so a couple months, but for draft protocol. But I, I just, I find that there wasn't more sort of advanced thinking on this idea. Um, I don't know, that just strikes me as odd. You also wonder too, and, and you mentioned this in the story, and um, we, we've seen other mentions of this too, is that, you know, the recruitment aspect of this, and maybe they maybe they wanted some more time to kind of, to be able to find the patients, you know, a, div a more diverse population of patients, which they've been criticized for not having in the original trials. Uh, you know, it, it's certainly, I'm, I'm assuming it would take a lot longer to set up that kind of infrastructure if it wasn't already 
you know, in place. To your point, Derek, on that, I am very struck by how little reference, again, there is in the review documents to the small number of minorities that were in those two phase three trials. It was not an issue that came up at the advisory committee, and it was not really an issue that came up much in the course of the review. But looking at the sort of uh, breakdown, I mean, black patients represented um, 0.7% of the participants in one study and 0.5% of the participants in another study. And if you talk to experts in this area, they'll say that um, blacks and, and um, Latinos are, are, you know, make up a greater percentage of uh, the Alzheimer's population relative to their percentage to the, uh, to the U.S. population. So I, again, I don't understand <laughs> why this has not been flagged as a greater issue in the course of the FDA's review. Yeah, you also wonder if, you know, there's obviously some documents missing that we either haven't seen yet or were removed for from the packages that were made public for one reason or another. And, you know, there are several that they could they could cite to do that. But yeah, the we're all we'll all be looking closely to see what else, you know, what what else comes up in this, you know, seemingly ongoing uh, saga of 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 Aduhelm. Next, we move on to the generic space. Teva said this week that Teva filed this week what is believed to be the first lawsuit under the CREATES Act, which is hoping to compel Amicus Therapeutics to sell its samples of the, to sell its samples of the Fabry disease drug Galifold. Teva is interested in developing a generic version of Galifold and tried to buy samples of the product on two occasions in 2020 and earlier this year. After receiving two wallet packs after their first request, Teva asked for 25 more, which Amicus, Amicus then refused to sell them. Under the CREATES Act, which was passed in 2019, Teva was given the option to sue Amicus and have a judge compel them to sell the samples. The suit seeks not only an opportunity to pay a fair price for the product that Teva wants, but also attorney and court costs as well as damages. But because this is the first case, a lot of industry watchers, a lot of industry watchers are going, going to be following this closely for the judicial interpretation of the provisions in the law. So part of the reason for the CREATES Act is to encourage generic entry. So for you all, just throw it out there. Do, do you think we'll just see a deterrent effect here as a result of this case? Or, you know, do we see the opposite that, you know, ever, you know, people start to think this is possible now? What, what, what do you, what do you, where do you think we go from here? I personally would be stunned if this case did not settle. <laughs> Why do you say that? Um, I don't think Amicus is going to want to set up precedent that's publicly disclosed to make it easier for other ANDA applicants to access the drug. Can I also just point out that it's weird that this company is called Amicus and they're we're talking about their, their court case? <laughs> right. I, uh, I found that very confusing when you were first uh, describing this to me, uh, uh, Derek. I don't know who kind of what the, uh, um, you know, what the other meaning of that uh, of that term is, but I, uh, um, I guess they, they, they could end up being fairly uh, um, uh, Friendly to the generic firm by through kind of uh, um, uh, you know through creating a uh, um, a pathway to show that the, the Crates Act uh, works and you know I feel like the Crates Act and uh, sort of other sort of uh, um, efforts to uh, encourage uh, uh, generic uh, um, uh, drug entry is almost sort of uh, 
uh, in a sense, for kind of saving the uh, the brand pharmaceutical uh, industry from itself. Like I, I secretly think that maybe some folks are rooting for uh, um, Amigas to uh, to lose, or as he was saying, kind of to settle on uh, um, relatively uh, um, favorable terms to uh, Teva, because uh, you know they they uh, um, you know there is continuing pressure on drug pricing. We see sort of Democrats and uh, Congress were kind of trying to uh, uh, reinvigorate the uh, you know the Medicare. Uh, um, Negotiation uh, um, uh, pathway uh, um, uh, recently in the in legislation's moving forward, and uh, you know the um, uh, there's certainly a, uh, a section of uh, um, uh, Republican policymakers that think the actual solution is not uh, you know sort of government uh, um, price setting, but sort of kind of government uh, um, you know path uh, path clearing that's sort of kind of were sort of kind of uh, you know a predictable uh, um, length of time that uh, um, Drugs were uh, um, on the market as brands, and then they became generics. You know, it would be easier for uh, um, you know insurers to plan, and uh, you know it could, in fact, even uh, you know bring uh, um, bring prices down overall by uh, by competition. This is always the uh, the argument that the brand industry makes: is just kind of well, you know, uh, brand prices are high in the U.S., but uh, generic prices are low, and they have to sort of kind of uh, you know uh, um, you know give life to that argument by uh, letting generics. Uh, Come on the market, and in the, um, in some ways, you know, having this uh, uh, brand company lose might uh, might be actually very good for the brand industry if it sort of kind of uh, it creates a, 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 um, a, a you know an escape uh, valve for the uh, the pricing pressure debate. Well, but it's uh, it's also interesting to me, like in that vein, that this is like the first time we've had to deal with this a lawsuit based on the Creates Act, which maybe you can argue is because just like knowing the law was out there, companies have been better about providing the drug. But I think there are definitely some people, even as this law was being talked about being passed, that felt like there was, for the most part, this wasn't a huge issue um, for, you know, generic companies. There were some companies that have made the process, brand companies that have made the process particularly difficult over the years. But, you know, um, despite, you know, I think what the brand drug industry would like us to think, this was probably a very minor um, thing to solve in the broader drug pricing scheme. But of course, they would like us to, you know, feel like, you know, a, a huge, um, you know, drug pricing issue was solved. So we won't think about other um, parts of the drug pricing debate that they would rather not come to light. So I think that's also sort of notable that, you know, some of these solutions, while certainly helpful for getting particular drugs in competition with particular um, cheaper versions of drugs on the market, you know, these, um, this isn't, you know, this panchea that's going to get us lots of cheaper drugs tomorrow. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, like you said, Matt, I, I, I do. I don't think brand companies want to go further down the road talking about, you know, things like margin rights and and Medicare negotiation and so forth. And and kind of, that this is kind of a, you know, the 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 fact that this is out there, you know, if somebody, you know, if two sides really get to an impasse, then okay, you have a you have an outlet to kind of, you know, deal with it. But yeah, the the, the fact that it's out there is. Uh, you know, at least what was was said to me uh, the other day when I was reporting the story was that you know that was deterring a lot of companies and and like you said, Sarah, a lot of this had gone away in the last few years anyway because of some of the publicity that had come out about it. That had come out about it, but um, yeah, the the fact that there you know that there you have the ability to, to you know to go to court and and uh, 
you know, now and, and kind of force somebody to do to do what you want is, uh, you know, certainly giving people some pause, I think, um, you know, on, on this one. Finally, today, we're going to take a look at FDA promotional enforcement. The FDA took the unusual step of issuing a press release announcing that they had sent an untitled letter to Amgen concerning questionable promotion of its Nulasta product. The company released an ad about Nulasta on Pro Injector that suggested that it is superior to Nulasta in a pre-filled syringe, which the agency said was misleading. Adding intrigue to the situation, the FDA also said that the ad could lead to lead people to conclude that Nulasta on Pro is more effective than biosimilar pegfograstum products, which are delivered via pre-filled syringe. Now, policing ads for misleading claims is common, and this is this one did not even rise to the most concerning level of a warning letter. But the fact that the FDA intervened to intervene to defend biosimilar products is interesting. Wouldn't you all agree? Yes, certainly. And the, uh, um, the emphasis that FDA placed on it, as you said, with the uh, the press release and uh, um, uh, how they played that uh, that up. I, you know, I should, uh, should say, as I said, uh, um, should have said uh, in our earlier discussions, we're kind of, uh, um, you know, Amgen obviously sort of kind of developed biosimilars, and in this case is uh, um, being uh, dinged for. Uh, um, you know, trying to limit biosimilars just as uh, Teva develops uh, um, uh, generics and uh, also has a, a big brand component too. So I, I'll often oversimplify it by saying sort of brand and uh, generic firms, but uh, uh, obviously many, many do both. Um, you know, I think it's uh, um, very interesting that uh, FDA is uh, um, trying to pull this, uh, um, pull this into the uh, into light. It's another sort of way of, uh, um, you know, perhaps. Uh, you know, encouraging uh, uh, uptake of cheaper drugs without sort of kind of uh, a government mandate around it, if they can, uh, um, you know, kind of keep the uh, the negative information or relatively negative uh, comparisons about uh, um, about similars uh, um, off the uh, I don't know if we say airwaves anymore, or kind of the uh, off the, uh, the the series of tubes that is the internet. Uh, so uh, um, <laughs> that uh, um, uh, that's uh, that's good for them and. Uh, um, it's uh um it's 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 probably for the best if uh, um there's less uh, um this kind of negative comparisons to it, uh, any drug really that uh, um that are justified yeah fda has you know they they've done a lot of biosimilar education over the years uh, you know since the since the pathway was created and they, you know they've said they want to reach out to physicians and and you know make sure that they want to you know to get them the facts about these products once they they're made available too so you know, one thing to to think about going forward with this would be, you know, what's is is the education, uh, you know, more effective here, or is the kind of the 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 sticker, the enforcement, you know, going to be uh, the one thing that you know that that kind of sticks here and and kind of gets you know kind of pushes things forward. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 